Morning, friends. Today's reading is, as Kel just mentioned, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching which, was in, which I was entrusted by the command of God our Saviour, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Saviour. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. Good morning. Um, thank you, Shireen, uh, for that massive Bible reading. <laughs> I have to admit, after last week, it's nice to camp out in just a few verses. <laughs> but um, uh, look, yeah, it's a great little, little uh, letter that Paul has written to Titus, and I'm hoping that it's richly encouraging to us uh, in the weeks leading up to Vision Month. Uh, let me ask you this question. Uh, what's a movie scene... Uh, I'm feeling very sort of cinematic today. What's a movie scene that sums up what it feels like being a Christian in the world? What's a movie scene that comes to mind that sums up what it feels like being a Christian in the world? Uh, in, in light of the, uh, the, the marathon today, uh, across the bridge in a very hot day, I thought maybe Forrest Gump is kind of one way to describe... Uh, these are very dated, some of these, actually. But anyway, because uh, Forrest Gump is like, how old is it now? Like, old. But anyway, uh, at least it's in colour. But anyway, so there's Forrest Gump, kind of just, just, he, he just with all the pressures he's feeling, he just, he just heads out the front door and starts running. Uh, and everyone else thinks he's a weirdo for doing it, but kind of following him a little bit as well. Maybe that's what it's like to be a Christian in the world. You know, you're just putting one foot in front of the other, stepping out in faith. Uh, everyone thinks you're a bit weird for doing it, but they're kind of curious as well. What about, um, what about Alice in Wonderland? Uh, maybe you've come to church, you think you're the only normal person here because everyone else is a bit weird, uh, but you know that the whole world has gone mad and so you might as well enjoy the party. Or what about this? Here's a scene from Gravity uh, and uh, you know, maybe you think that the mission is good, you've got confidence in kind of how things are, are going, uh, you know, you're out there in the glorious kind of you know, space and creation and then all of a sudden some space debris just knocks you for six and you're detached and drifting. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, we, we, or some, we know the goodness of God, right? We know the goodness of His mission. Sometimes things just hit us for six and we feel detached. That's certainly how I felt yesterday when I got the phone call about Judy. What about Blindside? I haven't really watched this movie, but I looked it up on the internet. Um, <laughs> Sandra Bullock again. Uh, she plays Lee and Tuohy, I think. She's, well, anyway, she's a wealthy woman. Uh, and she ends up connecting with and opening her home to Big Mike, who's sitting there, becomes an NFL star. Uh, he does not have a place to live, and she opens up her life and her home to care for him. Uh, maybe that's what it's like for you as a Christian living in the world. Whatever resources you have, uh, you seek to be a good neighbour, to care for those around you. What about this? Maybe it feels like saving Private Ryan. This is a classic. I remember seeing this movie on sort of the big screen. I was in, it was the first movie I saw sitting in the very front row. And it was like a three-hour movie and a broken neck afterwards. But anyway, um, it feels like the whole world has gone to hell. It is so messed up. Everyone and everything is hostile. 
and your mission to save Private Ryan, to do a good thing, just feels absolutely hopeless. There's infighting in your team, it's all very stressful. In this particular scene, Captain Miller uh, opens up because, you know, the the stress in the team has become so significant as they deal with massive ethical and, and sort of issues, as well as just deal with the stress of, you know, nearly dying every moment of the day. Uh, And there's insubordination, the guy in the front there is about to hold a gun to one of his fellow fellow soldiers, and then Captain Miller just interrupts this kind of super stressful moment and just says, what's the pull on me up to? And he's referring to kind of how people were sort of betting on what people's lives were really like outside of all they knew on the battlefield. And uh, Captain Miller opens up that he was a high school teacher. And it just, it just kind of is surreal that this, this kind of captain uh, in this hostile and, and, uh, and, and stressful moment had a, another life altogether, a peaceful life. I actually think Titus might have felt a little bit more like this scene. Titus is on Crete. Crete is a Greek island. How is that anything like uh, what's happening with Saving Private Ryan? It seems an amazing place to go. In fact, uh, one of my children wants to go to Greece and uh, the Greek islands would be amazing. I'm all up for that, except it's very expensive right now. Why is it so much like Saving Private Ryan? Because Paul says in verse 5, the reason I left you in Crete is to set what was left undone to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you to appoint elders in every town. And as we read on in the, in the verses after what we had read out to us, Paul outlines that there are many rebellious people amongst the churches, and Titus must silence them because they're ruining entire households. So there's a number of churches across Crete, it's still very new, there's not much leadership, and everything feels kind of hostile, actually, Because Paul goes on to say in verse 12, what's Crete like? It's not like this, it's more like this. Uh, Even one of their own prophets, Paul admits, describes Cretans as always liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And so the, the context is hostile. The church is kind of just scrambling to make sense of itself. There's not much leadership and there's all kinds of infighting and false teaching that's happening around. And Paul says, I left you in Crete so you could fix all that up. (laughs) It's like he's been paratrooped in to this hostile environment where the odds feel seemingly hopeless. What would you say, if you were Paul, to Titus to encourage him? What would your letter to Titus look like? Chin up, mate, it'll be all right. Might need more than that. Would it be apologetic? Sorry, you've got to do this, mate. Do what you can and get out of there. (laughs) Uh, Would it be militant, you know, crush the enemy and make Jesus proud? Would it be cultish? Ignore the Cretans and just find the true believers and set up your secret church. Well, it's none of those things. It's the gospel. Paul diffuses all of these uh, feelings and all of these possibilities by beginning with his own personal conviction that flows out of knowing the truth, knowing Jesus This letter is an invitation to join Paul, who joins Jesus, in the truth that transforms. It is a reminder of why Paul does what he does, because God is doing what he does. He saves, he transforms. This is personal. Verse 4, to Titus, my true son in the common faith. This letter is a beautiful letter from a spiritual father to a spiritual son to encourage him to remain steadfast in the truth, 
even while everything looks hopeless. And so really, I'm just going to step through each verse in this opening introduction to Titus. I want us to be drawn into Paul's and God's heart, to further the faith of the elect, to deepen their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, to ground them in the hope that leads to eternal life, to remind them that the God of all history is with them, and all because of the grace that leads to peace. What a wonderful few verses for us to camp out in this morning. And so let us begin, because Paul is not being a military commander, barking orders at a distance, he is a, he's a servant of God, that's how he describes himself, verse 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is a servant in the pattern of the Lord Jesus, who made the glory of God known as a servant. And his apostleship means that he has been appointed for the task of making this glorious Jesus known. And that apostleship, rather than being kind of a position of great power and grandeur, has led him to all kinds of things being shipwrecked and beaten for the faith, of facing insurmountable odds, and yet seeing a great fruitfulness that has seen transformation in people's lives in all eternity. And so he begins, the reason I'm doing this, the reason why I'm a servant, the reason why I'm a possible apostle, is for the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads. Paul says in another, in another version, it says, for furthering the faith. Not just for faith, but furthering the faith. And so let's have a look at this first uh, section of why Paul is doing what he's doing and how he draws Titus into that. It's interesting that we often think of Paul as a great missionary, and certainly that is what he was. But we're reminded here in this opening verse for, for furthering the faith of God's elect... Uh, that, that he's actually very interested, not just in evangelism, but in actually growing disciples, of seeing people grow in their faith for Jesus, to nurture what he has established in planting all of these churches. He's not just kind of like a church planter that is just kind of all about kind of the stories of, I've planted here, here and here, how great is that? No, he wants to see these people who have come to know Jesus strengthened in their faith as he nurtures them. But let's just kind of back up to be really simple so that we all might kind of grasp the wonder of the gospel. What is faith? What is faith? Billy Graham was asked uh, this question, of course, a great evangelist uh, within the last century, and he says this, faith simply means believing that something is true and then committing our lives to it. In the Bible, faith means believing in God and in what Christ has done for us to make our salvation possible and then committing ourselves to Him. In this way, he points us kind of the two, the two aspects of faith. One is to, to believe, to understand that it is true. But what good is it if it's just true and abstract and sitting out there unless you really believe and step out in faith and commit your life to that truth? Paul has been holding out the gospel so that people would believe that Jesus Christ, who died for sins, would make salvation possible to all who believe. But it's not just an academic kind of Wikipedia, oh, I understand that. No, he's asking people to step out in faith, to trust the Lord Jesus and to commit their whole lives to Him. And to that respect, Paul is desiring that people would be furthered in their faith. Uh, because faith is, is a whole journey. This, um, this little graph, uh, which is kind of a bit too simplistic, 
was developed by James Engel uh, in the 70s, I believe, as a way of representing our journey to Jesus. And he puts these numbers to it. Sometimes it's negative 10 to positive 10. Sometimes it's just, in this case, 1 to 16. But you can see at the very bottom there, you know, there's no awareness of God. Sometimes that's even kind of put as militant opposition towards God. It's like as far away from God as you possibly could get. Uh, And as you hold out the good news of Jesus to such people, what might you expect? Or you might expect them to have some awareness of God after you share Jesus with them, to to then contact with Christians or show interest in Jesus, so to move away from militant opposition towards kind of like a a curiosity or an exploration. Uh, Now, the problem with this, of course, is that it's never this linear. But what I find helpful about it is the journey of faith as someone takes steps towards Jesus. But what you'll notice, of course, is in the middle, in this case, 10, sometimes put as zero, there is a decision to surrender to Jesus, Uh, where faith has become real and someone's committed their life because they believe Jesus is who He says He is. But then after that, there's still a journey to go. There's a furthering of faith, of knowing Jesus more, and as Paul puts it, knowing the power of His resurrection more and more. And Paul here is saying, "I, I do what I do and I want you to join with me for the furthering of the faith of God's elect." God's elect. Now, there's a can of worms we could open up. What does God's election mean? Uh, well, I'll come, I'll come to this in a moment, but I'll leave it out there for now. Uh, God's election is one of the kind of the big doctrines that God really is sovereign. And what do we mean by sovereign? We mean He is the King who is over all things. There is nothing that's outside God's purview, His vision, His ability to, uh, to intervene, uh, for, for all plans to actually be woven towards the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Election means that God gives us salvation. We cannot earn our salvation, there's nothing we can do. It is a gift given to us and it is all within God's sovereignty. Election means that God has elected people to come into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus. Now, this gives us great comfort at one level. So, for instance, as this afternoon, a few of us go door knocking in our suburb, and there is not a pressure for me to kind of try and push my message upon people so that in my efforts, people would be saved. Rather, it is a sense that God is already working ahead of us. He is softening hearts and drawing people to Himself, and I am part of that plan, and it is altogether liberating and comforting to know that God is mighty to save. But of course, our philosophical minds like to run with this doctrine and might say things like, well, if God is in control and if He elects people to salvation, then why bother? Let Him do it all. Except that as we are furthered in our faith, as we want to honour and glorify God in everything that we do, do we not want to participate in His mission? Do we not want to honour Him in the way that we live and hold out and sort of, you know, overflow the love that we have found in Jesus. J.I. Packer, who wrote a book on evangelism and the sovereignty of God, are trying to hold these two things together. How, why do evangelism if God is sovereign? Well, he, he really, it, it's, it's not a kind of, it's not a satisfying book in the sense that he magically resolves the tension of these two things, but rather he says we must live in the tension of holding these two truths together, that God really is sovereign and we really are called to evangelize. But he writes this, 
I find it helpful. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helpless dependence. What we do every time we pray is to confess our own impotence and God's sovereignty. And when you pray for the conversion of others, when you pray for unconverted people, you do so on the assumption that it is in God's power to bring them to faith. Can you see why this this doctrine actually brings us comfort and liberates us to participate in God's mission rather than to go and try and save the world in our own strength? I'm reminded of the story of Joseph uh, from the end of Genesis. Uh, Joseph was uh, uh, kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the Technicolor Dreamcoat story, right? Uh, he was not a f- uh, his brothers were not a fan of Joseph. He was sort of a, a goody two-shoes in their eyes. And they threw him in a well and then told their dad that he would been killed by a wild beast. Uh, and yet, all the while, Joseph, at every step of that story, just continues in simple steps of faith with great integrity, seeking to honour God in all that he does. And so when he finds himself in prison, he simply shares the good news that bubbles up out of his heart uh, to those around him. When he finds himself in the courts of Pharaoh, he continues with great integrity, bubbling up all the good news he has in his heart, because he believes that God is sovereign. It goes really badly for him, and then it goes really well for him, to cut a long story short. And as his brothers actually come before him in great need, while, while Joseph is, is great in the kingdom of Pharaoh, uh, his brothers don't realise who he is. But he concludes the story by saying, you meant great harm for me, but God meant this for good. I think it's an incredible story of, while we don't see the big picture, God does. And we are trusting that God is sovereign. And with every step of faith we take, We are entrusting ourselves to the God who is able to take our actions and weave them into His sovereign plan for His glory. And so Paul labours to further people in their faith, knowing that God is sovereign. He calls people to Himself and liberates us to participate in calling others to Him as well. God doesn't want our strength, never did, never will, but He wants to give us His strength. Paul goes on to say he wants to deepen people's knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So he said, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the furthering of faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be soaked in the truth, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ And this truth, again, is not just a Wikipedia article that just sits in abstraction of things that you might, interesting facts you might learn, but rather it sinks into our heart and transforms us and changes us and leads to godliness. What is this truth? Well, uh, Kel's already referred to it, actually. Uh, That's a white screen of death. Okay, very good. Um, The truth is, (laughs) that's very kind of uh, enigmatic, Uh, it's from uh, Titus chapter 3. When Paul says, but when the kindness of God our Saviour and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to His mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, 
He poured out His Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, so that, having been justified by His grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, Paul says. That is, the truth of the Lord Jesus is that He has saved us and done so by by pouring out His Holy Spirit in us and joining us to all that is Jesus. And so that as Jesus died for us and rose again, so too have we died to our sins and our old self and are now raised to new life to live with Him, now and forever. And this is all because of the gift of grace. We have been justified, we have been made right with the Lord Jesus because of what He has done for us. And Paul wants brothers and sisters to grow in this knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. How could we not be transformed by the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that binds us up with Jesus so that we might know Him more and more? It gives us the power to be able to say no to ungodliness, as Paul says in Titus 2, and yes to living out who we really are in the Lord Jesus. This is a truth that changes your life. It is a truth that we measure all other truths by. When I look to older saints of the faith, I see people who are inwardly being renewed, who have a peace and a joy that is evidence of the truth that is rooted deeply in their life. My hope is that we can all think of wonderful people who have walked with Jesus many days and have seen the way that that truth has transformed their life, of the way they have grown in godliness, because they are like, they are like little milestones to remind us that ahead of us is glory, that God really is at work in us now even when we don't feel it. Is this a truth that you need reminding of? This week at Synod, Uh, Neville Naden, the Indigenous Officer for Bush Church Association, spoke, as did Michael Duckett, an Indigenous Minister at MacArthur, and a Torres Strait Islander woman, Larissa. They were helping us to think about the referendum, and for whatever we make of the voice, there was a consistent call for the hope of reconciliation between our First Nations people and settlers, us, me. What really stood out to me was when Michael Duckett said, For whatever hope we have of reconciliation in this country, reconciliation ultimately comes only in the truth of Jesus. My people need Jesus. This is a truth that transforms us from the inside out, transforms the way we do relationships with each other, transforms the way that we think about society until ultimately we enter those heavenly gates. Jesus has begun a new humanity project and is invested in you to participate in it. This is truth that changes lives. This is a truth that leads to godliness. It is not an academic exercise. It is a life lived in the knowledge of what Jesus has done for you. This uh, this book 
uh, that's in our book library, actually, uh, is uh, written by uh, Adam Ramsey, a pastor up uh, in Queensland. And he writes this, I mean, it's called Truth on Fire. And so he's, he's on about this truth, not just being about an academic exercise, but a truth that sets our hearts and our lives on fire. He says this, we ought to mature towards childlikeness. I love that. Sometimes we think of how truth and knowledge puffs us up. Paul even comments on that in 1 Corinthians as, a, as, a, as an error because a truth that leads us to being proud in ourselves, but rather, I think Adam is right, we ought to mature towards childlikeness. It's only when we drop our illusion of self-sufficiency and when we gaze in wonder and awe and joy on the God who is so far above us, the question is whether we'll slow down enough to do it. Will we slow down enough to be childlike in our faith that we might wonder in awe of who Jesus is and what He has done for us. And so we continue. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the furthering of faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, that God who cannot lie promised before time began. The truth is that we are spirit-filled heirs of hope, which means that the same Spirit that was at work in Jesus and raised Him from the dead is at work in us. Our hope is not like the hope that tomorrow will be a good day. It might be a good day. It might be a terrible day. Our hope is grounded in history's climax, revealed in the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. It has happened and it will happen for those that trust in Jesus. From everlasting to everlasting, God is at work and He is victorious. And let us not lose sight of that. Let us be grounded in the hope of eternal life. That God is at work. Judy had an unwavering hope in the Lord Jesus. Our dear sister is now on the other side of that hope. She needs not any longer to hope. She needs not any longer to exercise faith. Because all that remains for her is love, as she is embraced by the Lord Jesus. But while she was with us, her hope in Jesus was so beautiful. I remember her telling me, and, and uh, Jemima has already prayed this in because it was such a beautiful expression of her faith and hope. I remember her telling me that she saw her time on the oncology ward as a way to serve Jesus and to hold out the hope that she had, to help them feel loved and to share Jesus where she could. She said to me, I think God has placed me here for a reason. It would seem that death always wins. We have a 100% mortality rate. But Judy knew more. She now sees more. Our hope is in eternal life through Jesus. Do you have this hope? Do you have this hope? What a glorious hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. And as Paul talks about God's work from eternity to eternity and the hope that we have in eternal life through God, he goes on to speak about what's happening in our sense of time. He says, as we continue reading, in his own time, God has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. 
Paul knows that he was appointed for such a time as this, for the God who is sovereign over all of history, who elects people to himself, has actually appointed Paul for this point in time to be part of history, to be part of his story, God's story, and God is the God of all history, past and future, because Jesus stands at the end of it all and through it all. God has placed you, us, in this place and in this time. Sometimes we, need, we think we need like a big moment to kind of feel like we're part of this big story, a big sign. It seems like my stories today are coming through the movie screen. Uh, do you remember uh, this? Do you know what movie this is? Back to the Future 2, you even know which one it was. Very good, very good. Um, sort of coming from the same era as some of those other movies, uh, maybe a little bit older. But um, uh, in, in the story, um, oh, oh my goodness, Michael J. Fox, what's the character's name? Marty McFly, Marty McFly my goodness, had a little brain uh, sort of blank there. He's holding the sports almanac. Uh, we, I don't know, you're usually using the word almanac, uh, but it is kind of this, this cheap book that he finds in a store, you know, uh, and, and it's, just, it's just a history of sports results over the last 50 years, uh, and uh, it, it means nothing, really. It's just kind of like, out of, you know, it's a curious thing to flick back and sort of just review some of those things, except when future Biff gives younger Biff the almanac so that historical results suddenly become prophetic results. It suddenly becomes a golden ticket to put guaranteed bets down, and Biff gets mega rich. Sorry to spoil this. There's still a story to go from there, but you know you can see how don't get don't get too lost in the time sort of thing. But uh, you know when kind of what is is history is taken back into history, it now becomes prophetic. And as he puts down sports bets, he becomes very, very, very rich. What would you do differently if you knew how it would all end? That which seems insignificant, small and cheap in your everyday actions, what if you understood those to be part of a guaranteed end, a glorious end, a simple conversation at work, but because you know how the story ends, actually ends up leading someone to eternal life, an insignificant small story that changes someone's eternity, or a simple gesture of love that encourages a brother or sister to keep trusting in Jesus? How might every day small circumstances be transformed into glorious moments? May God use our simple actions in this place and time and join them to the best outcome of all, Jesus and His glory. And as Paul finishes, he says, To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. These two words for Paul that so often appear at the beginning of his letter sum up the whole beautiful message of the gospel, grace and peace and always in that order. For you are saved by grace, the God who is mighty to save has poured out His grace upon you and drawn Him to yourself and now you have peace. 
And may you grow in your understanding of that peace. May it sink deeply into your heart and infuse your every action. May it uh, quell, uh, kind of quieten the, the, the anxiety in your heart and the worry about what's next because you know that Jesus is victorious. And may you know that Jesus has drawn you to be part of it. Brothers and sisters, Titus needed to be reminded that his story was part of his story, of history with Jesus' resurrection's power at the very centre of it, of the truth of the Lord Jesus and its transformative power to take his feeble actions in what seemed like a, like a hopeless scenario, to bring about revival in Crete, to fix up what was a messy church in the context of a hostile space. Paul reminded Titus, this is why I'm an apostle. This is why I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus. Will you join me? Do you need to be reminded of that? Let me finish with a quote from Adam Ramsey in that book, Truth on Fire. If God is with us, we have nothing to fear, not even death. How would your life change right now if you knew for certain that moment by moment, God Himself was with you, sustaining you, never abandoning you, regardless of whether you sense His nearness or not, you'd never be afraid again. May that truth sink deeply into our hearts, that we might be equipped for every good service to the glory of God. Let me pray. Father, each one of us is experiencing a different uh, aspect of living in your world. Some of us feel hopeless and downcast. Some of us feel like we're weirdos. Some of us feel like we're able to serve richly and help those around us. Father, would you use each one of our stories because we believe that you are sovereign, that you are a God who is mighty to save, and we thank you that you have saved us, those who trust in the Lord Jesus. And now would you help us not only grow in this faith, that we might know our Lord more, but that we might hold out words of life to those around us. Use us for your glory, we pray. Amen.